You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, your laws are indeed good. Help us to trust it, help us to believe that, help us to actually, in the depths of our soul, Think of your law as sweeter than honey. We pray that you would do a great work in us tonight for the sake of Christ and for our own joy, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, If you are a fourth through sixth grader, would like to head on out with Caleb and Emily and talk about the last few weeks of the Ten Commandments that we've been thinking through together, you can do that. It was, as they're uh, filing out, let me tell you a story. It was the year 1631. And a new edition of the King James Bible had been ordered for reprint. And the printers, though, in 1631, uh, they accidentally uh, left out one little word from their reprint. Or so we think it was an accident. Uh, Because of their mistake, this one little word that they forgot to insert into the Bible, the Archbishop of the Church of England fined the printers 300 pounds, which in modern equivalent, this would be about a $50,000 fine for their mistake. The word from the Bible that they left out was the word not from Exodus 20, verse 14. So the seventh commandment, as delivered by God through Moses, read, you shall commit adultery. The 1631 version of the King James Bible forever became known then as the Wicked Bible. And nearly all of them were collected and burned. There are just a few of them left today, and if you find one, they are enormously valuable. There's one at the British Library in London. There's one on display at a Bible museum in Houston. There's one that is housed at a public library in New York, though it is very rarely displayed. So if you ever find one at a garage sale or a used bookstore or something, you could sell it and like retire and move to Tahiti. Uh, but why is this story such a big deal? I mean, it would have been a big deal had 
the printers left out not and any number of these Ten Commandments, right? Uh, it would have been really messed up if you had then read, uh, you shall murder, or you shall steal, or you shall, even the, the Tenth Commandment, uh, an act of the heart, a sin of the heart, you shall covet. I think, though, perhaps more than any of the other commandments, if we're really honest with ourselves, all of us kind of wish the wicked Bible were the real Bible. Maybe for some of us in this room, that would be more glaringly obvious. You actually begrudge that God has put any form of sexual constraint on your life. For some of you who are visiting tonight with us, you just jumped into the deep end, by the way. Uh, but if you're visiting with us and you wouldn't even consider yourself a Christian, you're observing uh, what, what it is all these Christians believe, the idea of any form of sexual restraint sounds archaic, perhaps ridiculous, and maybe even impossible. As long as there are two consenting adults, there is absolutely no harm in who one sleeps with. Perhaps for others in this room, especially for those of you who are happily married or joyfully content in your marriages, you might never actually pursue any kind of sexual relationship apart from someone who is not your spouse. You love monogamy. You are happy to be with the one that God has given you, your husband or wife. Like last week with murder, you might not even need this commandment to come and be presented to you tonight to talk you out of adultery. But if you probed a little deeper under the surface, if you were a bit more honest and reflective under the surface of your heart and of your desire, if you were really honest, you might realize that you actually do kind of enjoy the attention of someone who's not your spouse. That when you receive a compliment from this person, it's received with a little bit more excitement than compliments from someone else. Or maybe not even that, but you find yourself sometimes daydreaming, not necessarily about a different person specifically, but in how your marriage would be different or how your marriage would be better if you had actually married someone who was different and better. And so just like every week, I'm hopeful that all of us will see ourselves in the mirror tonight in the seventh commandment and then be pushed to the cleansing waters of Christ. Pushed to Christ for life, for joy, for hope, for fulfillment, and for contentment. So two headings for us tonight. Just like every week, if you're new joining us, we're now nearing the second half, the, we're in the second half, nearing the end of these Ten Commandments, but we've been thinking through each commandment in understanding the law and then in living the law, building a bit of a foundation to then live in the just joy of the house that God has given us. So in the past many weeks, we've thought about the law of God. If, if used rightly, like Paul says about it in 1 Timothy 1, it can have many good purposes. It can be used as a mirror. Without it, we might not be able to see very clearly our own sinfulness. We'll even think about this more from Romans 7 when we get to the 10th commandment about how Paul is thinking that he wouldn't even know that coveting is a bad thing unless God had brought him the law. And he was aware of this deep darkness within him. We talked about a second use of the law, that the law curbs or keeps societies from careening off into a ditch. Any society's legal code acts as like a plug or a lid on a, on a volcano, holding in and keeping 
human evil and wickedness at bay. But you can see that how a volcano plug doesn't really have any power to do anything to transform that which is within. The, the, the consuming power of the magma and lava inside of this volcano is still there. It's just plugged. But through the transforming power of the cross of Christ, through that Jesus would obey the law in our place, that he would live the life that we would have, should have lived because we could not, because we would not, because Jesus would die in our place of a lifetime of law-breaking, and that Jesus would be raised to new life, that we might receive new life and new hearts that are now finally alive to him. Now there is a third use of the law, that we might actually begin to more and more live into obedience in God, that we begin to delight in obeying the law, not as a form of earning his acceptance, but because we are accepted. And so here's the point that I think we very often can think of the law as a burdensome thing, as a heavy thing, as a way for God just to ensure that we don't have, ever have any fun. Like God has just sat down and made a list of all of the things that we humans might find enjoyable and then said, thou shalt not do any of it. And so, yeah, being a Christian sounds like a decent thing. I can understand like the propositional truths of it, but the actual life of a Christian sounds pretty miserable. If you want a four-minute explanation of this, just go listen to Only the Good Die Young from Billy Joel. In a later verse, he says, they say there's a heaven for those who await. Some say it's better, but I say it ain't. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. The sinners are much more fun. But that understanding of the Christian life is not the gospel. And it is not what God has intended. God has intended for a fullness of joy. He has not intended to squelch it. Think about it. When you are six or when you are 16, you say to your parents when they give you a curfew or they say no to some form of social media or something that didn't exist when I was six or 16. But nevertheless, when I received rules from my parents and when you were receiving rules from your parents, perhaps even now you are receiving rules from your parents. You might think they don't want me to have fun. They want to make my life miserable. They they just don't understand, they are not cool, and they just hate me. They want me to live a miserable life. Well, undoubtedly, there are some parents who actually do act in cruel and joy-squashing ways. For a parent who loves his children, why would a parent give his or her daughter or son rules? Why? Not to squelch joy, but for their deep joy for their human flourishing. A parent who gives no rules, who gives no discipline, who gives no direction, is indifferently leading their children into a life of self-centeredness, into a life that lacks self-control, into a life that lacks joy and meaning and contentment. So get to the point, Sherman. Where are we going with this? I think the so-called rules of our sexuality, the God-given sexual ethic of the Bible, we perhaps think to be the most constraining, the most joy-zapping rule of them all. We might even begrudge God that here I am, a human being, that God has given sexual desire to, and then I can't indulge that sexual desire. Either for a time, as I wait for marriage, in which God finally authorizes sex, or maybe never. 
Maybe I'm never married and I have this desire and then this seems cruel and unusual. It's like if I put a piece of cake in front of my kids or maybe just one of my kids and told him, you can't eat that cake for years. And then I start giving other pieces of cake to his brothers or to his friends and they begin enjoying the cake and he just has to sit there and look at it saying, you are a cruel parent to have done this to me. Well, we've got a lot to unpack tonight and not much time to do it. So what is this command actually saying or prohibiting? Like the sixth commandment, this commandment is just two words in the Hebrew. It just says no adultery or don't adulter. So what does that mean? What is adultery? Technically speaking, how this word is used in the rest of the Old Testament, what is being prohibited here is someone who is already married committing sexual unfaithfulness with someone else who is not their spouse. So that is off limits, prohibited. So we might say that the primary purpose of this commandment is to protect and support marriage, to protect and support the family. Societies have always had an interest in marriage and family and always uh, being able to identify and preserve what a family is. We need to, as a society, know who is responsible for whom. Do these children belong to these parents? Who is caring for these children? Are they caring for them well? Who will legally receive any assets or inheritance after someone in a family dies? And on and on and on. Adultery breaks the trust found in the societally important marriage relationship. If a husband or wife will not keep the sexually covenant relationship, uh, covenant faithfulness to those whom they are closest with, then all, society, all other wider societal relationships become or get put in a place of precarious danger. If we will not cultivate faithfulness to those whom we are closest with, much like we said about honoring our father and mother, whom won't we be faithful to? A society that cultivates and values faithfulness to humans and faithfulness to promises is a healthier society than one that doesn't. And that's why at its surface level, adultery is, even more, is a more serious sin than any other form of sexual sin. Because adultery, unlike premarital sex or other forms of sexual sin, is treason against a person and against the family. It is, against, it is treason against the marriage covenant before God himself. Like many other areas of life that we've considered over the past many weeks together, adultery has affected us all. It has affected us all, some at a more personal or acute level, but most of us in the present or very near past have walked alongside a friend or a disintegrating family or a brokenhearted spouse. Many of you as young children or now as adult children have experienced the nuclear fallout of adultery in your families. Several of you have yourselves experienced the betrayal and deep broken heart of an unfaithful spouse. And some have even been the adulterer, betraying your own spouse in unfaithfulness. We are a wide and varied group for sure amongst ourselves in this room. And the effects of sin hit home more deeply than in others, but we are all affected. 
And yet this commandment also comes to us to dig even more deeply in the rocky soil of our heart, not to just till up the half inch at the surface, but to dig deeply, to weed and to till so that the gospel of Jesus might grow and might flourish in us all. So like we made other connections and applications to honor your father and mother, not just to your biological mother or father, but made wider applications to honoring all authorities that God has placed over you. And then last week, we made wider applications of no murdering, a a relatively easy command to keep. But then Jesus then takes to a much, much deeper level of no hatred at all in your heart. He's getting to the heart behind the murder. So we're going to get to heart motives of adultery in a minute, but no sex with someone who isn't my spouse also then gets thrown into much wider categories, even for those of us in the room who aren't married. The New Testament word that is most often used to describe this is sexual immorality, or one word in the Greek, the the, the word porneia, obviously where we get our word for pornography. Porneia, sexual immorality, and porneia is a wide umbrella category of any sexual act or any sexual expression outside of the confines of permanent and covenantal marriage. So in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, abstain from porneia that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. The will of God for you, the fundamental, a fundamental part of your sanctification, of your becoming more like Christ, is that as Christians, we abstain from sexual immorality. Not just adultery, not just fornication, which is premarital sex. These are different words that Paul could have used. This is the will of God for your life, that you abstain from adultery or that you abstain from fornication. But he uses a much wider category, a much wider umbrella, that you abstain from porneia, that you abstain from sexual immorality, any or all of it. The umbrella category of sexual expression found outside of the permanent marriage covenant of one man and one woman. So let's just move straight into living the law because I can sense the many questions that are coming up and I can see the gears turning perhaps. Living the law here, maybe the first thing that this commandment and in fact the entire sexual ethic of the Bible that it's pushing back against is our modern and very firmly held conviction that sex is sex is sex is sex. Any kind of sex is, is good sex. It's, it's indifferent. We should be indifferent. There's, there's nothing innately or inherently special about any, other, any one form of sex over and against another. It's a biological process that includes pleasure for the propagation of the species, but to put any kind of constraint or certainly to elevate it into some kind of spiritual purpose or something is not only archaic, but it is in fact dangerous, and it is in fact damaging individuals, and it is damaging societies. Well, first of all, we can't blame the Bible, or we can't blame a traditional sexual ethic for the massive amounts of depression and even suicide that are related to sexual or gendered isolation. It isn't the Bible or a traditional sexual ethic that has elevated sexuality to a level that is so high that if I am not being fulfilled, in exactly the kind of way that I desire to be in the moment, sexually, 
that life now no longer is worth living. And so our culture today simultaneously teaches out of one side of the mouth that sex is nothing. It's just a biological process. It doesn't really matter. It has no inherent meaning. It has no lasting value. And yet simultaneously, at the exact same moment, out of the other side of the mouth, says that sex is everything. Sex is nothing. It has no inherent meaning and value. And yet sex is everything. Without it, you cannot be happy. Without it, you cannot live a fulfilled human life. Now, surely Christianity and the church have been complicit over the past 75 or 100 years or so in falling in line with the Western sexual ethic that has been um, undergirding much of our lives and expectations that sex exists to be mind-blowingly awesome and fulfilling. And that in our youth groups, perhaps we were told that waiting for sex until marriage is to merely place yourself in a holding pattern in order to make marital sex even that much better. Like if you just wait, man, just, whoo, boy. Then, then you can, when you get married, you know, 20, 21, 22, hopefully, hopefully you don't have to wait much longer than that. Uh, hopefully, then you can begin your real life of meaning. You can begin your real life of fulfillment. And this is a lie that we have been, that we have bought into. And yet it is the wider cultural exaltation it is the wider cultural worship of sex, not the Bible, not the Christian church, that has set the expectation so high for adolescents, who then are young people, who then are adults, that the inevitable outcome for any human being, it feels like today, the inevitable outcome for any individual in the West, because the bar of sexual expectation is so high, the inevitable outcome for any human is disappointment. Inevitably, our collective cultural sexual identity is that of feelings of missed expectation, of under-fulfillment, of sadness, even of depression. And by the way, wider social studies are now beginning to show that, that uh, amongst folks with complete so-called sexual freedom, sexual liberation, that of no sexual constraint, that of serial hookups, basically everything that Freud and Kenzie and 100 or 200 years of sexual psychology could have possibly hoped for in the past couple of decades. Basically everything that they could have hoped for. Social studies are showing that the, go the goddess Aphrodite has not kept her promises. There is more psychological problems. There is more anxiety, more depression, more sadness, more suicide amongst those with zero sexual constraint. It's almost as if sex was given to be understood and enjoyed as a gift, not as a god or an ultimate end in and of itself, which is exactly what C.S. Lewis was getting at after in his classic, The Weight of Glory. Like, you didn't possibly think we are going to be talking about sex and stuff and not get to this quote, right? Uh, from The Weight of Glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, 
we are far too easily pleased. So it's not that we humans have out-of-control desires that are just way too difficult to handle. No, it's just that those strong desires are actually just pointed in the wrong direction. They are looking for ultimate fulfillment in all the wrong places. Our desire for ultimate things, a good God-given desire for ultimate things, has now been hijacked and is way too weak. Or as Lewis would elsewhere say, what does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing we were desiring. We are looking for fulfillment and satisfaction, and we get that thing, and it does not bring satisfaction and fulfillment. Well, that was not the thing that you were looking for. Sex is a wonderful gift given by God to be enjoyed, yes, but it is also oriented toward union. It is oriented toward an ultimate fulfilled desire. Sexual union now and in this age is like a scratch and sniff sticker. It reminds us of the ultimate thing. It gives us some indication of the thing that it is pointing toward, but it is nothing like the real thing. A scratch and sniff banana or like the raspberries. The raspberries were always good when I was a kid. Uh, Smell good, but it's nothing like a nice big basket of real raspberries, right? I realize this sounds weird. (laughs) Uh, And in fact, I'm not even sure what any of this really means. That our sexual intimacy, given by God as a gift to be experienced in marital union, is oriented towards and pointing us towards, giving us a glimpse of something greater and better. This is really strange. The idea that marital sexual union points us toward a final and full union with Christ, our bridegroom, that is certainly not sexual, but is something much, much more. Like, I don't think we have a category for this. And I realize that I'm like C.S. Lewising you all to death here, but Lewis imagines telling a small boy about sex. He's describing sexual union between husband and wife to a small boy for the very first time. And the boy asks, if the lovers eat chocolate while they're making love. Chocolate is the highest form of pleasure that this little boy can possibly imagine. He has no category for a higher pleasure of sex. In fact, he might think that when his father tells him, no, there is no no chocolate involved, uh, that sex, one of the chief characteristics of sex now, is that there is no chocolate. I understand sex to be uh, an act of no chocolate, which is just an unbelievably low and misunderstood understanding, right? Similarly, we tend toward thinking about eternity and our fully realized union with Christ, an eternity no longer seeking after or desiring after physical sex. We tend toward perhaps thinking of it one of its chief characteristics of eternity of the thing which it is lacking. It doesn't include one of my favorite things, sex. Well, so eternity must not be very good, right? But just as lovers are thinking of higher things than chocolate, so eternity will be for the bride of Christ. Lewis says, we know the sexual life. We understand it. We do not know, except in glimpses, except in scratch and sniff stickers, the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. 
We will have no more scratch and sniff Snickers in heaven because we will not want them. As we've throughout, or as we've thought before throughout Scripture, here is the pattern and progression of marital union and of singleness. There is, is there singleness in creation? Yes, for just, you know, like a couple of verses. And then God remedies that situation. So singleness in creation, non-existent. Singleness in the Old Testament, well, it's uncommon and generally undesirable for people in the Old Testament. What about singleness in the New Testament? Well, now singleness is advantageous for kingdom ministry. It's not just undesirable. It can actually be used as a great gift. But singleness in eternity, universal for all of us. So since singleness with humans is where we are all headed, and we are all headed toward being wed and fully bound to Christ for eternity, and even though many of you brothers and sisters would love to be married, and this is a good desire that you don't have to be ashamed of or feel sorry about that you desire marriage, I assure you, your singleness is not hell. Your singleness is not God's punishment. And if Paul is right in 1 Corinthians 7, your singleness for a period of your life, or perhaps for the whole of your lifetime, your singleness is to be considered a gift, to be received with thankfulness. And a gift not that you got from your great aunt that you wish you didn't have, that you put, on, you put in the attic and never look at again and wish that you had never received in the first place, but a gift to be used and utilized, a tool for the kingdom. Your gift of singleness is uniquely preparatory for eternity, where we will all be. And yet, marriage too is a gift to be received with gratitude and thankfulness and in its own ways are uniquely preparatory by the way, uh, Sam Albury's incredible book, The Seven Myths of Singleness, is out here on the book card. By the way, the, I was just looking at this thing before. Uh, there's like, I don't know, 15 or 20 great books on sexuality, dating, singleness, you name it, you got a subject you'd like to think more about. There's some really, really good books out there that you can just put your name down on it and take it and read it. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about C.S. Lewis. He was writing in the 1940s, in the 50s, while the truths of his writing transcend generations. That's why I still love to read him, why many of you like C.S. Lewis. I think he would hardly be able to imagine a culture such as ours, which is so pornified, so sexually charged, where even amongst Christians, it's almost a given that Every person of pubescent age will occasionally pursue pornography at the like, bare minimum, at the least extreme. And the actual more realistic understanding is that every pubescent male will have like, an all-out problem, perhaps even a pornography addiction, which is more and more the case for women as well. Where even amongst Christians, it's almost a given that if you are romantically interested in a person and you become a couple, you will begin uh, giving yourselves to each other sexually in some ways. But even more, that's like the bare minimum, even more realistically, 
uh, you'll begin sleeping with each other well before marriage. That's just like a, a, a given. And to ask otherwise seems impossible. Impossible. This is an impossible ask of God. We'll try our hardest, but really, I mean, let's be real here. Well, in an unbelievable Gospel Coalition post from Matthew Lee Anderson last month, we're going to link this in the weekly email. It's really long. It's like a short booklet, more than a blog post, but it is so worth reading the entire thing. Anderson says this, the inescapable availability of pornography and the corrosive pornification of all other forms of media means that the most pressing challenge for Christians is rediscovering what purity feels like. He says, yeah, the whole C.S. Lewis mud pie and holiday at the sea thing, like, that's great. But we've almost entirely forgotten that there's a sea. We don't even know that there's something better out there. What makes the sea so good and worth wanting to go to? Or maybe we've, maybe not forgotten about it, we've never known in the first place. To us, the idea of pursuing complete sexual abstinence until marriage, for some of us that might mean pursuing complete sexual abstinence for our entire life, a life of celibacy. That seems and sounds cruel and unusual. Another law that God gives with a whip. He's like waiting for us to have just an inkling, an ounce of pleasure, and then just crack it. A lifetime now for us to be experiencing unfulfillment and dissatisfaction. But to believe, to believe that, to believe that a life of celibacy is a life of dissatisfaction and unfulfillment is to say that Jesus lived an unfulfilled and dissatisfied life which couldn't be any further from the truth. Jesus was the most fulfilled and, we might say, fully realized human being in the history of the planet. Not to say that sex is like subhuman or something, and that because he abstained from sex, now he was more human, but that pursuing godliness, pursuing obedience, pursuing a delight in, the, in God's promises, pursuing the kind of a uh, way that we might be able to pray and mean and feel the thing that we, we professed earlier from Psalm 19. That this was Jesus' entire mode of existence. To live that way is to actually live more into our creational norm, not less. What does Jesus say in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5? He says, blessed are the pure in heart. Happy are the pure in heart. Why? Why will they live such a happy, fulfilled life? For they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When temptation towards sin lies in front of you, lies in front of Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, no, I must not choose joy for myself. I must like whip my back and choose pain. I will not choose joy. Instead, I'll choose to begrudgingly obey. I hate it, but I guess I'll obey. And I'm not even sure why I'm doing it, but I guess I gotta. No. Why does Jesus obey the Lord? Why does Jesus delight in the Father's promises? Because, not because he wants to choose less joy for himself, but more. Because he wants to see the Father. He wants to experience the eternal depths of delight in knowing him and being known by him. I will choose 
more joy for myself, living the entirety of my life in his sight. I will choose joy for myself. I will aim at the higher ideal, the, in, the higher aim of fulfillment, not the lower one. Not, low, not that lower ones are bad desires, but they are gifts to be experienced as gifts. But getting to a place where we can think that way, getting to a place where we can actually live, obey, and love, and mean Psalm 19, that's a different, that's just a really, really difficult thing. It means rediscovering what purity feels like, which to some of us is just completely foreign. We, we, we can't understand what that would feel like or that it would, would be a better life. God did not create sex as an end in and of itself, but what Tim Keller calls sex, he calls it covenant cement. It is the binding reality, the binding agent of man and wife. It binds and bonds two people into one. It is a covenant renewal ceremony. A man and woman make covenantal oaths at a wedding. They become one flesh. At the moment they say, I do, and the minister pronounces them man and wife. They are now one flesh. But then, over the course of their life, sex is one means by which God uses to make them more and more one flesh into a deeper felt and lived reality of one fleshness through sexual union. It is a means to an end, not only in making them more and more one flesh in this life, but also pointing them towards eternity. Think about this life. Tish Harrison Warren, I'm just going to quote you guys to death. Uh, but she says this, when we have sex, our bodies are enacting a promise. Two are becoming one flesh. That mysterious conjoining and fusing is a physical embodiment and sign of the covenant of marriage. It is set up so that the person you sleep with is the one you do your taxes with and celebrate anniversaries with and struggle through long, dark years with and fight over the thermostat with till death do us part. This is how God has given us sex, as a gift to make us more and more into one fleshness, not as just a means to experience and seek after some sort of physical, biological pleasure. Sex is productive. It is intended to deepen the already marital covenant. But it is also productive in that it is oriented toward children. That the first command given to the first marriage in Genesis 1 is that Adam and Eve would be fruitful and multiply. Not that every sex act ought to be aimed toward reproduction or that every couple is able to have children. But this is one more reason to oppose the falsehood of the so-called symmetry of sexual partners of the same sex. Sexual partners are not interchangeable. Sexual partners, no matter their sex, their gender, their other categories, are not interchangeable. And the same sex sexual partner, partnership is inherently sterile. It is a reality of this relationship. There is no sense in which this sexual partnership is the source from which societies as God has intended. 
Of course, adoption and modern biomedical science have circumvented this supposedly unfortunate er, accident of biological reality. But scripture, of course, has an incredibly high view of gender and sexuality and an interest in humanity being created, male and female, and sex being much, much more than a biological process, of it being much, much more than a function in which partners are interchangeable, no matter who it is, just as long as it's pleasurable and both parties are consenting. There is much, much more here. And guys, I, I realize that I've just been like skimming the surface on much of this tonight. I know that if you're just visiting with us or you're exploring Christianity, much of what I have said might be received by you as backward or weird or even harmful and hateful. I just ask that you perhaps not walk out of here with dismissive hands. Like, that was stupid. I'm never going back there again. It's next to impossible to give an entirely comprehensive biblical sexual ethic in like 40 minutes. So let's keep talking about this. I'd love to meet with you, talk about this over coffee. I'd love to connect you with some other folks who would love to meet with you and talk about this over coffee, make some great book recommendations out here. But before wrapping up here tonight, can I just tell you that I am a sexual sinner? That doesn't mean, praise the Lord, that I am cheating on Marcy or that pornography has had a grip on my life for more than a decade now. Praise the Lord for that. But I still do not understand or live into the reality, the full reality of my sexual desire as a fully realized human being. As Jesus Jesus comes to me with Matthew 5 with stinging words of rebuke. Perhaps I've been high-fiving myself this week and thinking, yes, I've never cheated on Marcy. Way to go. And then Jesus comes and says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The law comes to us as a mirror, yes, but I think perhaps some of us might think it's like, like a dance studio mirror or something where we can see our movements from afar, our big picture movements from a distance. But in his kindness, Jesus shows us to not be content with keeping the gospel at a distance. To high-five ourselves for keeping the bare minimum of sexual expectation. Jesus comes now with one of those High magnification like makeup mirrors. It is up close and personal, revealing and showing all of the imperfections. Not just every wayward and impure sexual action, but every wayward and impure sexual thought. Were we just the same as if I was committing adultery with someone or lusting after them with my eyes and in my brain and in my heart. I am just the same treating another human being, another image bearer of God as just some sort of commodity out there. Not much different than a nice meal or a good drink. Something out there that increases my level of pleasure in this otherwise unpleasurable life. 
We're treating them just the same for my desire, for my fulfillment. And so there is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace for every single one of us in this room. A room full of sexual sinners. A room full of those who have been unfaithful to their spouse. To those male or female who feel caught or trapped within the throes of pornography towards those who feel tempted or perhaps acting upon desire towards those of the same sex, towards those who are in dating or otherwise romantic relationships and pursuing some sort of sexual fulfillment with someone who is not your spouse now. Grace upon grace upon grace. For those of us who are high-fiving ourselves for our sexual virtue, but then still find ourselves grumbling in subtle discontentment with our spouse, or even more overt discontentment in our singleness. Adultery is in there, just biding its time. It is dark, and it is unthankful for the life that God has given them. And so Jesus flattens the ground so that it is level at the foot of the cross, that we all might come to him equally with no claim of our own. And all of us in this room and for Jesus' church worldwide and through the ages, we might all come to him as sexual sinners and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. All of us. And then... Jesus doesn't just come with a first-use high-magnification mirror to show us how ugly things are. He doesn't just come with a volcano plug of a second use to try to make us a little better. He then comes with a third use to transform our very desires so that the very root of our actions is transformed. Nobody who commits adultery, at least most people who commit adultery, don't stand there at the wedding ceremony, as they're making promises to their spouse and say, I'm going to cheat on this person. It may be a while, but I'm going to do it. I would imagine that's very few and far between. How does someone get to adultery? Well, the next many years are just patterned after small compromise here, small compromise there. And so the grace of Christ and the work of the Spirit comes to us for sure, yes, in the big moments of temptation and desire. But the good news of the gospel is that it comes, the triune God comes to us in all the other mundane moments of life as well to train, to change, to transform us. Not necessarily, yes, but not necessarily by fighting the battle of desire on the battlefield, but as James 1 says, fighting the battle before desire actually comes and drags us away, before desire can take effect. That's where the gospel comes to do its real work, to transform us so that when we actually are on the battlefield, there's actually not much battlefield left. Jesus has done the work. The Spirit has done the work on this end. Guys, Christian sexuality was one of the most countercultural ways of living in the first couple centuries for the church in the Greco-Roman world. And our sexuality is increasingly becoming one of the most countercultural parts of our lives. Not just in what we're against, but in what we are for. 
And we want to be, we ought to be known for what we are for sexually. We are for flourishing marriages, flourishing families. And even outside of biological families, we are for flourishing life as the family of God. Here together on Sundays, but then throughout our weeks as we share our homes with one another. May we embrace this, not just as God's law for the good of society, but for our own deep and personal joy. We ought to be hedonists, we Christians. We ought to be pursuing the highest amount of joy possible in this life, seeking the deeper pleasures of God. But a life of hedonism, of true, ultimate hedonism, means often denying and walking past the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that we might hear from God and that we might take from God from the tree of wisdom, that we might hear God and love it. Maybe so of us. Maybe so. This this is a lot to unpack with each other over the next week. So let's pray for God's wisdom and his help. Oh God, we, we know that it is your will Your will for us, our sanctification, that we would abstain from sexual immorality, but we are failures. And if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? The answer is none of us. But with you, there is forgiveness. We know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we know that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So purge us with hyssop and we shall be clean. Wash us and we shall be whiter than snow. Let us hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from our sins and blot out all our iniquities. Create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Cast us not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. In Christ's name we pray and we trust all these things to be true. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.